Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Ahmaud would go out running, jogging every day. Ahmaud Arbery's mom is speaking out since her son's killers were found guilty. We investigate the tale of the tape. You're now dealing with the whole world watching. What if there was no video of his murder? When you think about the eerie similarities of the killing of Trayvon Martin. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie, like a gray hoodie. And, and the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. How far have we come in racial equality in America? And then. It's unjustified, it's abrupt and it's not good for tourism for South Africa. COVID chaos in the African diaspora, multiple countries and the crosshairs of travel restrictions. We asked the question, what of the people now grounded as the new variant gains traction? Plus, remembering Virgil. I embrace imperfection as much as I embrace the pursuit of perfection. The revolutionary visionary taken too soon as everyone from Chicago to Hollywood celebrate the legend. From LV to inspiring Kanye, how he took the art of streetwear to impact high fashion. In my eyes, it's an, it's an art movement. And Annie gets a modern day makeover. Meet the pint-sized powerhouse with the pipes, who's about to make history. And Kevin Hart's family reunion with our Kennedy Rue McCullough. I've known her since she was yeah, young, like, like, like baby. I'm yeah. talking about. Like We've got all that and much more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Ebony K. Williams. We begin with the tale of the tape. Now, when the world saw the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Dante Wright, and George Floyd play out on video, that footage became game changers for justice. Our communities rose up and demanded deeper investigations for the truth. But could any justice have happened at all without that video? And how would things have played out if there was no tape? That's the question we're asking in tonight's top story. You're now dealing with the whole world watching. The whole world watched that 36-second grainy phone video that did one thing leading up to the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery. No, 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 no. The video changed everything. The tale of the tape, Hulu's Nowhere to Run, the Ahmaud Arbery story, explores what happened on January 23rd, 2020. One of the neighbors saw a pickup truck with a man in it, so I know that it was a third party. I just didn't know what party played in it. That third party, now convicted murderer William R. Bryan, who along with father and son Greg and Travis McMichael, gunned down Ahmad, who was jogging in the southern Georgia neighborhood. They claimed self-defense. Ahmad would go out running, jogging every day. While the recording was a documented claim for self-defense, it eventually backfired. There's nothing else I can do. Just I mean, just shot me. May 2020, the recording went viral causing social media and activism pressure, along with the hashtag, I run with the mod. But what if there was no video recording? When you think about the eerie similarities of the killing of Trayvon Martin. Did you see what he 
Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie. And the killing of Ahmad Aubrey. How far have we come in racial equality in America? Eerily similar, but very different. Unlike Ahmad's murder, there was no video, just audio of George Zimmerman's 911 call to authorities before shooting and killing a then 17-year-old Trayvon in 2012. He claimed it was self-defense. I understand that we have a verdict. Are we ready for the jury to come in? A six-woman jury accepted self-defense as his justification for fatally shooting and killing Trayvon. The Florida case sparked a national debate on racial profiling and civil rights. In May 2020, after passerby Darnella Frazier's evidence of George Floyd gasping for air under the knee of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin went viral, outrage, protest, and calls for action sparked an entire movement. Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. Around the time of the Chauvin trial, former Brooklyn Center Minnesota police officer Kim Potter is seen in footage firing the shots that killed 20-year-old Dante Wright. Potter claims she grabbed her firearm by mistake, instead thought it was her taser as he tried to drive away from a traffic stop. Potter is charged with first and second degree manslaughter. She's expected to testify in the trial, which is underway. So the question now is, will the tale of the tape lead to justice? I took my media camera with me. In 2017, when passerby Faden Santana's famous video of former officer Michael Slagger shooting a running Walter Scott in the back and then planting his taser gun as to make it appear as though the two had fought over it. After the shooting, it was the, um, that's when he saw me. Former North Charleston officer Slagger pleaded guilty to federal charges of using excessive force. But were it not for the tale of the tape, the outcome could have played out very differently. So now I want to get to this concept of video and the fact that so many people are now filming on their devices. With that, I'd like to bring in Cobb County District Attorney Flynn Brody, also trial attorney Chris Stewart, who's managing partner at Stewart, Miller & Simmons, and law and ethics professor at Georgia State University, Clark D. Cunningham. Now, I want to ask you, uh, Mr. DA, about the case of Kim Potter. We know that's the former law enforcement officer. Uh, that was caught on camera shooting and killing Dante Wright. Now, she says that she thought that was a taser. How do you expect that case to play out? Uh, we know none of us have crystal balls, but I'd love your your perspective as a prosecutor. It's kind of hard for her to see that she made that mistake, especially someone with 20 years experience. Um, my time in the military, I knew exactly what I had in my hand at all times. Mm. Um, so to, to think that she made that mistake and even if she had a taser in her hand, why were you pulling the trigger on this young man um, to cause the death of him? So, so there's there's a lot of questions here, and 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 I would definitely question, you know, her 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 excuse for saying that she made a mistake. Right. And do you think, Chris, when we do see the limited footage that we will see, that that will be something that the prosecution is going to lean into uh, in a big way? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a situation uh, really about training, that there's absolutely no way that a veteran officer knows that, you know, doesn't know the difference between her gun and a taser. You know, that's their focus in that it had to have been intentional or something like that, because you just don't mistake your gun for the taser. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's going to be a big focus. Do you think we will see a trend where video evidence is more readily available to the public, Professor? Well, there's only 
two ways probably, or three ways that that's going to happen. One is what kind of leadership you have, what kind of leadership you have in a police department, what kind of leadership you have in the prosecuting prosecutor's office. If they're committed uh, to transparency, then they'll be willing to make that, inf that evidence publicly available. If they're not, and the Arbery case shows what happens when you don't have transparency, then I think you need legislation uh, to require that, if, that uh, video evidence, like webcam evidence, uh, be made available, I suppose, initially uh, to the public. Uh, a big problem here is that if uh, prosecutors decide not to charge, there's no court case, and, and the victim doesn't have any legal rights. As we, as we saw in the Arbery case. Attorney Stewart, I want to ask you this. As a, a very experienced and successful trial attorney, what's the perspective on how much stronger a case becomes when there's video versus simply audio tape, uh, like was the case in, in the prosecution of George Zimmerman? And how do you think that will play out in the Kim Potter case? Well, if you're African-American, you, you can't just have audio. You need mm -hmm. video. You better have witnesses. You better have a priest out there, um, mm. you know, it takes evidence that unfairly, um, you know, has to be there because they're not just going to believe the audio. You have to have the video. And I've even had cases where people were fighting, believing the video with Walter Scott, you know, running away mm -hmm. or Alton Sterling. Um, you've got to have everything. Um, sadly, that's the state of how things are when it comes to video evidence. But, um, you know, that's why body cam and, and witnesses who are filming um, and not jerking the camera away or stopping filming are, are so crucial, just like with uh, George Floyd. Right, you want to see all that context. Uh, and to that point, you're making the case that it's it's not always clear-cut, even when there's video. Can you kind of connect the dots for us, Attorney Stewart, where video is extremely important when you can get it, and the fuller the video, the better, but how it runs up against challenges from the statutes that still make it difficult to find a prosecution even when there is video? Yes, yeah, the same thing that I hear all the time is. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, it may look bad, but it was legal. Or it may look bad. Um, I've heard the phrase, you know, policing can look bad, but, you know, it's necessary. Um, you know, and that, that's the thing is some of the techniques are very gray in their use or when it should stop or when it should start. And so even if it's caught on video, it technically may not be against policy and procedure. Um, we have a case down here in Georgia where an officer let a canine loose on a man that was already subdued on the ground. Now, it's on video. We have mm -hmm. proof. There are witnesses. But the, his department found that it was legal which is insanity. But, um, right. you know, so the policies give outs uh, when mm. needed. Um, so what you see may not always be found uh, to be wrong per the standards. District Attorney Brody, now we know that the video in the case of uh, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery did lead to a victory of the prosecution. What kind of precedent uh, do you think, if any, that conviction will set when it comes to other trials that include video? I think one of the things that's important is when there is video available, that prosecutors take the opportunity to send these uh, videos to a grand jury to let the community make the decision on whether charges should be brought forward. Uh, because lots of times our own implicit bias causes us to see things the way they, not, they shouldn't be seen. And so to take that out of the picture, 
send it to the grand jury. Let the grand jury make the decision so that way you can't, no one can say that you're being using favoritism towards someone that you may know like that we happen to have in this case. Indeed. Now, we're having a lot of conversation around how in the case of the Arbery trial, of course, the video was essential to a successful prosecution. But we know that there's been cases like our, I'll never forget the one in California, uh, Stefan Clark, where there was video and it didn't lead to a prosecution. So can you talk a little bit about how even when there is a video, there can still be challenges for a prosecution? Well, in this case, with the Aubrey case, the last few seconds of that video, when uh, Mr. Aubrey comes to the front of the truck, are hidden from people's view. And that's basically what the case boiled down to is what happened those last few seconds. Um, so when when we see that video, we don't realize everything that went up to that point. And, and that's where we established um, the defendant's guilt by looking at all the evidence that was presented prior to them actually moving to the front of the vehicle. And, and I think that's key in all cases is sometimes the video doesn't tell the whole truth. You know, you have to look at all the things that led up to it and then from there make a decision. And in this case, you know, the McMichaels were were very rabid about talking up to the officers on the scene. And, and even if we didn't have the video, I think their own words would have condemned them based on their actions that day. Attorney Chris Stewart, District Attorney Brody and, of course, Professor Cunningham, thank you all for joining us and sharing your thoughts about this important conversation. Now, coming up. Remembering designer and style visionary Virgil Abloh, how his imprint on fashion changed the streetwear game. But first, the world responds to the COVID-19 variant and the economic hit to several African countries now on the restricted travel list. What's at stake? We're going to get into all of it straight ahead. This is one of those situations where, you know, as you've been reporting so far, you are absolutely correct. There is a lot we don't know. And in many ways, what we don't know vastly eclipses what we do know. Uh, we know that the Omicron variant is concerning. We know it is concerning essentially because it has many mutations, which people had previously identified could be concerning mutations that will occur naturally. That was epidemiologist Dr. Jonathan Cantor expressing his concerns about the latest COVID-19 variant Omicron, which now put the world on edge. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm special correspondent Naima Abdullahi outside of the CDC headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. Year two into the pandemic and COVID-19 continues to spiral into many different variants, causing health concerns, leaving scientists and medical experts working overtime to examine how dangerous the latest version really is. In the meantime, the Biden administration reacting immediately, placing travel restrictions on non-U.S. citizens traveling from South Africa. Originally, the World Health Organization stated that that's where the Omicron variant originally originated, and that is now being disputed. In addition to South Africa, there are seven other African countries on that list, and they are... Botswana, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Lesotho, Estawini, Mozambique, and Malawi. But the United States is not the only country placing restrictions. There are many other countries, including the United Kingdom, Australia, France, Germany, Singapore, and Israel, to name a few. From science to safety, we really want to discover in this conversation exactly how this impacts Africa as a whole, and in addition to that, how this impacts the people in the diaspora, and if they truly believe that these restrictions are justified. 
We're back inside for our roundtable discussion, and we have a dynamic group of panelists lined up for you. First up, South African clinical psychotherapist based in New York City, Kumo Masege, vascular cardiologist and professor Dr. Bernard Ashby, and philanthropist, entrepreneur, brand ambassador of tourism for Zimbabwe, Dr. Shanita Foster. Dr. Shanita Foster, let's start with you in this discussion. As someone dedicated to shining a light on what life is like in the motherland, from your perspective, what are people back home in Africa feeling about these restrictions set in place? My phone started ringing right away. Uh, they felt attacked, um, to say the least. Uh, when I first heard the news, I actually had just traveled from South Africa. I was in Ghana, departing from Ghana. I was in the middle of doing a water project uh, with a KJM foundation. And so my first instinct was to say, okay, let me look at the information that's being projected. BBC reported that in France, they had 33,000 new cases. Uh, UK had 46,000. Germany had 76. South Africa had 2,828. That was the country that was announced that was being shut out of the United States. So you can imagine um, the disarray the upsetness that was coming from them because they ultimately felt attacked. Let's follow up on that. When you say attacked, what do you mean? Meaning that they were the first ones that were announced that they were going to be banned from the United States. And what's unfair about that situation is, number one, no one is speaking on where did this variant come from? Why are we only banning African countries? Mm. I want to follow up on that. When we really examine the shockwaves that this announcement of this new variant has caused all over the world um, and the information that um, that Dr. Foster is really talking about, at first it was indicated with the uh, World Health Organization that it originated in South Africa. Um, and then health officials were saying that it was present in Europe long before the travel bans impacted Southern African countries. How does this information impact African communities? Um, South Africa has really incredible epidemiologists and, and folks who study infectious diseases because we've had such, um, you know, high rates of HIV and AIDS infections. We've had to create the right resources to be able to detect things like this. And I think the reason that we were able to detect the new variant is because of these incredible resources that we have and that we've had to create. And it seems like we're rather being punished for having access to that information sooner than the rest of the world, rather than kind of being applauded or being named that, you know, we were the ones to figure it out, especially considering so many countries outside of the outside of Africa also had infections. Obviously, there is a historic um, back, backdrop to this. The West uh, has traditionally exploited uh, that, that continent. They um, have a terrible history of, of racism and oppression uh, there. And, and uh, the decision to uh, block travel from that country, uh, you know, had, it was, you know, partly scientific, but uh, really, uh, you know, steeped in uh, bigotry. And just, just to look at the travel ban for a second, uh, you know, the, the actual utility of it is extremely limited. And, and actually um, pretty much uh, does more harm than good, if you think about it. And if they were really concerned about preventing further uh, transmission of this particular variant, they would use our technology, 
meaning that they would do more testing and more sequencing. But we have done none of that. The US, U.S.'s contact tracing program is non-existent. But I went out and said that the variant is already here. I mean, it was already, it's in Canada. It's in, it was in 15 other countries. It would be basically naive not to think that it was already here, given the fact that uh, we're such an interconnected world and, and our ability to actually detect uh, these variants at a granular level is uh, mediocre at best. And so this was completely, I believe, irresponsible and, and destructive to those economies. And it was not helpful to them. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Americans, and, and this, this is just an example of politics getting, uh, getting involved and actually bigotry getting involved with the actual interests of the public. When we really examine the uh, World Health Organization, there are some mixed messages that are being um, kind of dispersed out there. Um, on one hand, the organization says that the Omicron variant poses a very high global risk because it may be resistant to vaccines. On the other hand, they're criticizing the restrictions. Um, Dr. Ashby, a spokesperson for the organization, said in a statement, Travel restrictions may play a role in slightly reducing the spread of COVID-19, but place a heavy burden on lives and livelihoods. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with the WHO in this matter uh, because it's not helpful. Um, you're actually harming uh, your aims. If the concern was that there's a new variant that is uh, very concerning, uh, considering the fact that obviously it has uh, multiple mutations, uh, 50 plus mutations, 30 of which are in the spike protein, that makes it a prime candidate for uh, uh, immunity resistance. The blunt tool of shutting down travel to an entire region of a continent uh, really doesn't accomplish that, aim, especially when you have the variant in multiple countries. Simply blocking travel from uh, a country or a region is not going to solve the problem. Um, when we look at the vaccination rate of some of the countries in Africa, um, we looked up some data according to our world in data. Lesotho is at the highest at 26.51%, while Malawi is only 3.05% fully vaccinated. Um, and just uh, for a small case of comparison, countries like Singapore have 91% vaccination rate, UAE 88%, Portugal 87%. Do the vaccination rates tell a bigger story that we really need to shine a light on? It does tell the story. They're not asking for a handout. They're asking for a hand up. Mm. And so if you're asking for the help and as all of these more advanced countries, as we're stating that we're going to help them, why are we not delivering the things that they need? There are countries on the continent of Africa that are raising their hand that are saying, hey, we're willing to take the vaccination. We know that the vaccines do work. We know that they do actually slow down the virus. The numbers are there. We understand it. Why are we withholding this? Why are we withholding it from South Africa and Botswana and especially the smaller countries, the Aswatinis and, and the Malawis, as you speak? As we, can, I, um, can I jump in? Really yeah, quickly? go ahead. Jump in. It's unconscionable that these vaccine patents are not open source when we're dealing with the worst global pandemic of our lifetime. This is sickening. 
you know, when we really talk about what's happening right now, so far we've seen seven different variants. Um, and to see Omicron make its way to the United States with a case reported in the United States and California from South Africa. As a South African in the U.S. yourself, how does it make you feel to learn about that? I'm very wary of headlines. Yeah. Because I think they are in a lot of ways used to create a narrative. And while I do think that, of course, you know, it's possible that this person came from South Africa and this happened, I am also curious to know whether or not it's being reported because South Africa is one of the countries that's banned. In doing that, we kind of neglect to also notice, well, how many were there already in such and such a place? Have you looked into it? Mm -hmm. What else has come up around this? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where some of these headlines kind of serve to actually create really unfair and and unwelcoming narratives about African countries. I appreciate that input. Um, Dr. Ashby, what would a mandatory vaccination do in these eight countries? And also let's expand upon this. What does hesitancy look like among young people um, within the diaspora? Is How high is that hesitancy? Because we talk about full vaccination. Let's talk about how it also plays into hesitancy as well, possibly. We can't even get to that issue without talking, uh, without, without discussing the point of vaccine access. Okay. I mean, it, it, you can't be hesitant to get something you, you can't even get. So, so right. yeah, that, that's not an issue. And so that's not even, even part of the discourse they're more concerned about just getting the vaccine for the people that are begging for them. And anyone who is elderly, anyone that had, is immunocompromised, particularly with uh, infectious diseases that, that, that may be uh, endemic in certain areas, uh, particularly malnutrition as well, uh, a, a lot of folks need access to care in general, but these vaccines. And so there, there's no convincing needed at all. They just want access. And so uh, before we even talk about that, we have to talk about the fact that uh, most people in, in the African continent do not have access to vaccines, and that's why they have the, the lowest vaccination rate in the world, and it's unfortunate. Thank you so much, Kumo, Dr. Ashby, Dr. Foster, for your time, for really contributing to this conversation. All right, up next, the culture loses an icon, a special conversation about the legacy of creative visionary Virgil Abloh when Revolt Black News Weekly returns. The show must go on. That was the Louis Vuitton Men's Spring-Summer 2022 show, subtitled, Virgil Was Here. Some of the biggest names in the culture gathered in Miami to pay respect to the late, great Virgil Abloh during his final collection. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. The culture is in a state of mourning and quite frankly, still shock with the passing of creative visionary Virgil Abloh. Virgil died on Sunday at just the age of 41 years old after a private two-year battle with a rare form of cancer. An era-defining artist and designer that has collaborated with some of the world's brightest stars and biggest brands. Virgil has left just an incredible impression on the fashion world. Today, in his memory, we want to explore Virgil's influence and his ascent from the Chicago cultural scene to becoming one of the biggest names in all of fashion. We've pulled together an incredible group of his fellow creatives. Joining us is one of the creative directors and co-founders of Public School, 
Dal Wee Chow, celebrity stylist Rachel Johnson, and brand strategy and ideas entrepreneur Johnny Fresh. Welcome all of you to the show. I just want to start off by saying, and I know all of you had uh, a relationship with Virgil, so I'll, I'll start uh, with you, Rachel, and just let me know how you're feeling uh, in the wake of uh, Virgil's passing and this extraordinary collection. Um, I'm still processing how I feel about the passing of Virgil. Um, in many ways, it does feel like he's still here. Um, I'm in Miami today and didn't have the heart to go to the show yesterday. Um, it almost felt like it could be the equivalent of attending a funeral and I'm not ready to say goodbye. I'm still processing his passing. It doesn't seem real. And, um, you know, like when you stop to think about it, it, it all feels so, you know, like so tragic. And so, uh, you know, like it doesn't feel right doesn't feel fair um so i am comforted by the fact that he left so much um for us to live with and his influence will be felt you know from for decades on out. Virgil was definitely an iconic individual whose disciplines spanned it not just fashion right it's fashion it's furniture music art all those things how do you describe Virgil's impact on the culture at large? Virgil really was like a visionary for us all. And I think what I loved about what he represented uh, was he was a multi-hyphenate. So the fact that you could do, you know, all these different things. And he really represented that for this generation of creatives that uh, that like to do different things that have multi-different, you know, very different passions. Virgil's impact on the culture at large um, is something that cannot be quantified. Um, I attended his exhibition at MOCA summer 2019 in Chicago. And there was a um, part of the exhibition that was titled, You're Obviously in the Wrong Place. And in that space, there, were, um, there was a picture of cotton. There were pictures of uh, Black African children holding his Louis Vuitton designs. You're obviously in the wrong place signifies the fact that he opened up these doors for us so that we could be in spaces where we didn't necessarily belong initially. I am a longtime Louis Vuitton consumer, right? Like since, uh, since I could go into the store and swipe a card that was my own. When Virgil was named creative director, it hit different. I literally walked into the boutique differently. Um, because I had a different sense of belonging. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. In the space, if that makes sense. Um, uh, Johnny Fresh, I want to ask you this. Coming out of Chicago, how would you describe Virgil's evolution uh, as an artist, really, and his effect on the culture scene there kind of as a hometown hero. Being from Chicago, I think is, it's, it's an amazing thing. And the fact that he's from here, I think is, it's impactful. Um, I honestly feel like being from this city, a lot of times you feel the challenges and the barriers of like not being able to break out. And um, I know too, like with him being from a, a suburb that there was a lot of conversation about like the, the fact that, you know, you can have, you know, these expansive, uh, you know, 
uh, visions and you can have these things that inspire you to be great. And I think the beauty of him being from here, being close to here, but also being able to stretch and reach the world in a unique way because of um, his ability to connect and, you know, and communicate and be human with people. Rachel, I want to ask you as a stylist that makes it uh, her point to always include black designers in your fashion mix. How important was it when Virgil was named the first black artistic director um, of Louis Vuitton? I just remember my phone blowing up um, with all of my industry compadres. Everyone was so excited because um, in the spirit, true spirit of Virgil, when it happened for him, we all felt like it happened for all of us. I was blessed enough to attend his first show in Paris and um, one of the things that I remember at the end of that show was Virgil coming out and receiving all of the love and the adoration. And he went straight to Kanye and Kanye wrapped him in his arms and Virgil just cried. One of the other things that I really noticed that year was that the number of Black people who took that trip was like nothing I had ever seen before. And every year our presence grew and grew. But that year of that show was when people stepped out of their comfort zone. They came to Paris because Virgil was there. Dal, I wanna ask you as a designer who's also made kind of a similar jump from streetwear in terms of, you know, that, that particular genre of fashion um, to broader kind of, you know, designer fashion. Can you decide, uh, describe for us rather what elements it took for Virgil to make that kind of ascension because you don't always see it. Virgil, more than anything, this this cult of personality, you know, like his, um, you know, coming from uh, the camp of Ye and um, Jerry Lorenzo and Don C. Um, I think all those guys, you know, like had, you know, this thing about them that was beyond sort of just the fashion, right? This idea of aspiration, this idea of sort of like, you know, he, he was, you know, unapologetically hip hop. Like he, you know, where you take, you make something from nothing. He was this open source. Like he never, he never tried to hide it from anyone. He never tried to keep it a secret. Like I read somewhere that, you know, like losing him was like the equivalent of sort of the world losing Steve Jobs. Certainly there are comparisons, but I think what was different between him and Steve was that Steve Jobs was like, everything was like closed sourced. Everything was like specifically for, you know, Apple and, and, you know, like it didn't, it wasn't meant to like interface with any other um, operating system. But I think Virgil was the opposite of that. He was like, yo, I'm doing it and I'm showing you how I'm doing it. Like I'm literally, giving you the blueprint. And I don't know how he was able to uh, amass the, the level of impact um, that he was that he was able to have, but the work that he put in, even the Mercedes-Benz Maybach, you know, project that just, um, you know, was revealed today. There's so many things that I think we're going to, over the next five to 10 years, we're going to continue to see the vision of Virgil Abloh come to life uh, in front of us because I think he was able to touch that many people. And I think his ideas, I think over the last couple of years, he was very intentional about where he put his ideas. And I'm, I'm really excited to see how his legacy continues to evolve from that. Beautifully said. Rachel, Dow, Johnny, uh, I just want to thank you all for uh, 
uh, that beautiful contribution to this conversation as we celebrate the memory and the iconic artistry of Virgil Abloh. Virgil Abloh was only 41. Virgil, our king, rest in power. Stick around, we've got more Revolt Black News Weekly after this. Now up next, we're gonna switch gears. Kevin Hart and Wesley Snipes have, they got everybody talking about their not so true story. And of course, Kirk Franklin takes gospel to the big screen. Kirk Franklin stops by to discuss his new Christmas film for the holiday season. All that's coming up on this week's Revolt Radar after this. That's adorable 12-year-old Selena Smith taking center stage and getting us in the holiday mood at the Thanksgiving parade. Selena stars in the new Annie Live, airing on NBC Tonight and streaming on Peacock. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Ebony K. Williams. Now it's time to check out what else is happening in entertainment. Our special correspondent, Kennedy Rue McCullough, has all the details. Hey, Kennedy. Hey there, Ebony. Let's start with Kevin Hart taking a serious look at fame and fortune. But first, Kirk Franklin is getting us in the holiday spirit, and that's on top of this week's Revolt Radar. My baby daughter, his name is Kennedy, so you almost brought tears to my eyes. And with that, Kirk and I had an instant connection as we discussed his holiday-themed Lifetime movie, Kirk Franklin's A Gospel Christmas, airing this weekend on Lifetime. What's going on in the Franklin household this Christmas? Man, I'm just so grateful for God continuing to give me what I could never deserve. I am blown away that after all these years, that the Lord is kind enough to still to still see me as usable. With the holidays, I definitely want to celebrate my queen, my black queen this holiday because she's been so sacrificial and allowed me to work. Kirk's queen is his wife, Tammy Collins. It's been quite the year for Franklin who wrote and arranged songs for the movie. It was based around music from my 1995 Christmas album. And so what I did is I reimagined a lot of those songs for the movie. So you're gonna hear new versions from the Kirk Franklin and the Family Christmas album. That said, the movie focuses on a young assistant pastor played by Demetria McKinney. Her character is assigned to lead a new church just before Christmas. Leading a church is a huge responsibility. These type of moments are moments that I live for to be able to uh, just make people feel good, you know, so you can put on a onesie and you can get you some hot tea, you know what I'm saying? And you can sit around the fireplace and 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 just to be reminded of the beauty of these songs. This is a toast to my little brother. Wesley Snipes and Kevin Hart team up for the Netflix limited series, True Story, about the gripping journey of two brothers entangled in a world of celebrity, crime, and lies. Why is it that every time you tell me you got it, I feel like I get in more trouble. What do you think is at the heart of this message? Fame and fortune. And what happens, how that changes people, how that changes the family, how the family members and friends are prepared for one of their own, not only becoming into fortune, 
but also having faith. I love you, man. What do you guys both think is at the heart of this message that is so important? The biggest one is how far would you go to protect the things that you have? You know, the things that you feel that you've worked hard for. Everything I worked hard for is over. For me, the family dynamic is everything. Mm. And that's what we're going into. And in real life, it was like a family reunion for me and Kevin, who explained our Hollywood relationship with series creator Eric Newman. That said, it was back to work for me, asking the questions. I've known her since she was uh, like, young. Yeah, like, like baby, baby. Like born. Now I got a lot more to lose than just my career. The seven-part limited series is streaming now on Netflix. All right, turning to the gaming world and the more than 211 million people on their smartphone, iPad, computer interacting, now there's efforts to shine a light on the diverse voices in gaming. Popular content creators Faze Swag and Faze J Smooth have teamed up with McDonald's to help Gen Z gamers of color reach their streaming careers. What's going on guys, I'm Faze Swag. I'm Faze J Smooth, and for this holiday season, Faze and McDonald's partnered up to help out the Twitch community. As fellow content creators and streamers, we know how hard it is to actually get some recognition and climb the ranks. It takes hard work, dedication, patience, and consistency. When I started watching Twitch, uh, I used to watch a lot of 2K and Dokkan Battle streamers. That's actually where I began my journey. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline on Dokkan Battle and just having a lot of fun, a lot of passion, seeing people come in and just supporting you. It's been a great journey and I'm blessed to be here today. As a black content creator and streamer, I knew how hard it was growing up. You know, everyone looked down on playing video games all the time, man. You know, and I just want to let you guys know a message to you is that it's okay to want to be a streamer or a gamer. You know what I mean? You don't have to be a rapper or athlete. Playing video games for a living is awesome. So we know there's a lot of young, talented streamers out there flying under the radar. So in December, we're gonna choose three lucky streamers who are gonna come hang out with you guys. And there's gonna be a lot of surprises. I can't wait for you guys to tune into the streams and we'll see you guys there. That is so cool. For those up and coming streamers, be sure to tune into Twitch December 8th, 10th and 12th. We'll be right back with more Black News Weekly after the break. Welcome back. This week, our stand-up series takes us to the Magic City and the Youth Arts Center in Miami's Little Haiti community that's bridging culture, community, and young people all under one roof. My name is Sandy Dorsonville. I am a cultural curator. 
I'm the manager of the Little Haiti Cultural Complex in Miami, Florida. We are one of the few facilities in the United States that completely promotes and emphasizes the work of Afro-Caribbean artists um, throughout the world. The Little Haiti Cultural Complex is about 15 years old. In the beginning, it was just performing arts building and the visual arts building. Over the years, the Caribbean marketplace was renovated and reopened, and that's when the complex was born. We are helping the students that come through here prepare their portfolios so that they can apply to arts education programs. So in this space, they are finding a state-of-the-art theater, a state-of-the-art gallery, a marketplace to promote their wares. And even if they're not physically here, this is a space that we can promote what they're doing. We can distribute information about the different performances and the different things that are happening. One of the best ways that the Little Lady Cultural Center inspires the next generation of leaders is by celebrating what some of the um, OGs, like we like to say, or some of the people who have been doing this work for so long have, have been doing. And then also we give them an opportunity to, to learn from those masters and from artists that have been in the genre for a long time. Best advice I would have for anyone who's interested in doing the same type of work that we're doing here. It's really about having passion and finding a team that has the same vision as you. Anybody who wants to get information about us can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Thank you so much, Revolt and State Farm, for supporting all the work that we're doing here. And thanks a lot for knowing great art when you see it. Bridging the culture, community, and youth. We love all that, and thank you. All right, that does it for us. I'm Ebony K. Williams for Revolt Black News Weekly and the revolution that is shaking the foundation of popular culture. needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.